This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program, the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Thank you so much for joining me, whether you're listening in Edmonton or Vancouver or Calgary or Winnipeg. Uh, love having all of you here with me. You can email me at whenever you like in confidence, nurse talk at hotmail.com. You can also ask me your health questions via Twitter, 604 449 84 That's 604-449-8459. Or if you want to call me, 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-98. Or if you have any questions for me at all. I want to talk uh, in this hour about uh, mental illness, relationship issues, your emails, and uh, also death by suicide. September is Suicide Awareness Prevention Month. But first, we're going to talk about mental illness. Mental illness indirectly affects all Canadians at some time through a family member, friend, or colleague. Mental illness does not discriminate. It affects people of all ages, education, socioeconomic status, and cultures. In any given year, one in five people in Canada will personally experience a mental health problem or illness. 8% of adults will experience major depression at some time in their lives. About 1% of Canadians will experience bipolar disorder, otherwise or previously called manic depression. By age 40, about 50% of the population will have or have had a mental illness. Anxiety disorders affect 5% of the household population, causing mild to severe impairment. And schizophrenia affects 1% of the Canadian population. Mental illness is caused by a complex interplay of genetic, biological, personality, environmental factors. This according to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Jamie joins me on the line. Jamie was raised by a single mom who had severe mental illness. And she wanted to share her story about what that was like growing up with a mother who had severe mental illness, how she felt about her childhood, and the impact that has had on her adult life. Good evening, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. I mean, hi, uh, Maureen, sorry. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thanks for joining the program. I really appreciate it because I think your story can help others who may be living with somebody who has mental illness, um, whether it be a mom, which is particularly difficult, or a sister or a brother or a husband or a wife. And so when we share our stories, we empower other people. There's such a stigma associated with mental illness. I think the more we share the stories, the better off we're going to be. You, you know how common it is. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about your mom? Um, my mom, um, she was diagnosed bipolar when she was about 25 years old. Um, she had just actually had me when she was diagnosed. Um, she told me that it was actually brought on by her having a child which was me. I'm an only child, and um, I felt an extreme guilt because of that. Um, that was another big reason why, you know, what, how it's affected my life growing up, the, like, the guilt factor. Um, it, was, it was devastating. It was emotionally traumatizing. It was, um, it was terrible. So, it was awful. Uh, and so there are a couple of types of bipolar disorder, bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. There's uh, the bipolar um, one that is associated, bipolar 2, associated with um, psychosis. Uh, did your mother experience psychosis? 
Um, uh, occasionally she did, yes, but she was more um, manic. Okay. And so did, so did she ever, what kinds of things happened? Was it easy for her to care for you? Um, did she abandon you? Were you left alone at times? Um, yeah, she did leave me alone um, quite frequently. Um, her, her behavior was very erratic. It was very uh, spontaneous. I felt very um, abandoned in a lot of ways. She would often pick men over me. She was very, um, uh, yeah, she just wasn't, she, she tried to be there for me as much as she could. But when she was first diagnosed in 1985, they didn't really know much about the illness. And so it was more of like a, they were trying to figure out, you know, what she had, how to treat it. Um, so it was, it was very chaotic and they didn't know much about it. So, right. I, you know. And, and some, and I imagine she wasn't medicated, um, as soon as or appropriately, um, which is why she displayed some of those symptoms. Yeah, in the beginning, they didn't really know what was wrong with her, and so they had to try her on many medications. A lot of things didn't work. Um, she was in and out of hospital a lot. I was left alone with my grandparents. I was in and out of foster homes for the first year of my life. Um, it was just a very unstable environment for me. And you say she chose men over you. And one of the symptoms, if you will, of bipolar disorder is there can be a hypersexuality. There can be, um, I've certainly heard of patients who have, um, you know, taken their clothes off and walked down a main street or, um, or very, um, you know, very much into men, very much into um, a sexualized life, which, which they may not do. They likely would not do uh, if they were, uh, treated appropriately and, um, you know, having the proper medication and, and therapy. Right. No, uh, absolutely. Um, my mom um, was very, uh, I guess you could say, promiscuous. Um, I don't know, even at the age of 33, I don't know who my father is. So that's also been a um, very hard thing to accept. Right. And you mentioned that you had some guilt that the fact that she had you as a baby and, and she says that triggered her mental illness. So you've had to bear that. Um, but you're in the medical field. And so you must know that, um, you know, that it, this is not your fault. It can be brought on, but it's, you know, it's likely genetics. But were there behaviors that she displayed according to your grandmother or other family members prior to her uh, getting pregnant? No, no, um, no. I, I've never heard anything about her behavior. Um, my mom told me uh, personally that she did experience anxiety um, as a teenager, um, depression, um, uh, behaviors that she couldn't quite under uh, understand or explain, um, like her promiscuity, like being promiscuous, or or you know certain things. And then it, when she was diagnosed, it became a lot more clear to her what was happening to her growing up. Right. So other people didn't notice her, her anxiety or depression or her promiscuity. Um, it's possible that they did. They didn't speak to me directly about it. No. I see. Because that typically um, precedes a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Right. I, I, I've learned that now. Right. Uh, and so how has this affected you uh, as an adult, as, as a 33-year-old woman, not knowing who your father was? And, and potentially you may never know who your father was um, or is. And... Um, and how has that affected you in your in terms of your career, in terms of your family? Um, what what well, did you have dreams as a child? Um, dreams as a child? Uh, no, not specifically. Um, but I did end up, uh, regardless of what I went through, I did end up to be um, successful um, with a with a career in the medical field. 
which is which is great for me. <laughs> I mean, it, but I, I don't Did know. Did you have it, a sense you wanted to take care of your mother, that you're, you oh, wanted absolutely. to succeed because you wanted to help her? That's exactly why, yes. Right, so that drive you a little bit. Yes, it did. So, I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we want people to have these perfect lives or we think, or, you know, we must be lawnmower parents and we must, you know, mow down any obstacle in their way. But, but sometimes the challenges in life actually make us stronger, make us more courageous and make us more empathic. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm a lot more resilient probably than I would have been if I didn't have a mother um, with mental health, health illnesses. But, um, yeah, I am. I am a lot more resilient. I am successful because I, I felt like I had to take care of my mother um, as an adult. Now I thought that I'd have to take that on. Um, I, I've always taken it on since I was young, but I knew that I had to. I wanted to be successful financially and um, be a stable uh, person in her life um, to take care of her one day. I knew that it was going to it was going to happen. So I just it did drive me to be more successful. Yes. And I'm certain there's been a, a number of heartbreaks throughout um, your life with, with a lot of joy as well. Um, but you, you still, you always love your mother. You always love your parents, you know, no matter who, who oh, they absolutely. are. Yeah, yeah, no, I love her. I love her dearly. I, I, although I do have a lot of resentment. I mean, I have a lot of anger. I have a lot of um, feelings that I haven't really dealt with until recently in my late twenties, early thirties that I've, um, realize that I need to deal with. I've been seeing a counselor to try and um, understand those feelings because mm-hmm. I kind of have always just been, um, like I said, the caretaker, even for her when she was, when I was little and it was, it's always been difficult for me. And I've always, you know, felt like I had to take care of her and I never really had a childhood and I felt robbed of that. And right. um, it's been really hard for me. Did you ever have a fear that you might get the same illness? Um, I did have a fear of that. Um, they said, I think that's the, the statistic I think is 25 or, um, yeah. you know, 25%. You start, start, right, exactly. And uh, I haven't really shown signs of having bipolar, but I do have um, anxiety issues. I do, um, I have suffered from depression. Um, yeah, those are really the only two things that I've noticed in my mental health that have, I have Right, uh, bipolar, not. I mean, specifically, no. But more, probably more situational. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, you're a busy professional, um, and so as a mother, as you look to be a mother, um, what what is it that you that that you have learned, or how would you um, manifest that? How would you? What what is important to you as a mom? For um, your own just children, being, just being there for them um, in every way, listening to them. Um, being a supportive uh, person in their life, never never abandoning them, never choosing um, other people over them, um, just being very loving. My mom was always very loving with me. That's one thing that I didn't go without was love. I had a lot of love and affection, which is probably the only reason why I am as um, successful and, uh, I mean, as stable as I am. I think it had a lot to do with the love that I did receive from my mother. Mm-hmm. But... Um, do you the think abandonment it, issue, I think, is a big one um, in my right. life and what, how it's affected my life. And, and not having a father as well, I think that's really affected my life in terms of um, the men I have and the men that I choose in my life. I was um, going to say, has it affected your relationships? Um, uh, yeah, it's affected my relationships in terms of the type of men that I choose. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess I could say that. But, 
you know, yeah. At least, you know, insight is critical. What would you say to a child that um, might be listening, an adolescent perhaps listening to your story or hearing you? Um, you know, what would you say to somebody who might be experiencing the same thing or somebody who's living with somebody that they love that has mental illness? Well, first of all, I'm very sorry that they're going through that, and I completely understand what they're going through. Um, just know that it's not your fault. Um, have patience. Um, just trust that it'll get better. And, um, you know... Maybe it, some it, help for themselves, uh, seeking seeking yeah, therapy, do you think, counseling? I, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Counseling, I, I, see, I thought counseling a bit too late. I think, well, not too late. I mean, it's never too late to get counseling, but I think I could have benefited from it when I was a lot younger. And I wish that my mother would have put me into counseling when I was younger so that I could actually deal with my issues instead of having to deal with them now and be confused about them. Right, right. Well, I think you're awesome. I think you're doing fantastic. And I want to thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on the program and sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. All right. Uh, And you know what? Therapy is a gift you give to yourself. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Andrew, I got my first text. Already? (laughs) Already. Wow, that's... From Calgary. That's good. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know what, it was, it was simple. It was quick. <laughs> Are you going to share it? Yes. Dear Maureen, I am in a sexless marriage for 17 years. <laughs> well, there we go. Perfect. Prelude. Right down your alley. For the next segment. Yes. I'm an right expert. Right up your alley, I guess, right. is the proper turn of phrase. Right in your alley? <laughs> Maybe later. Right on your alley. Um, This is uh, a field of expertise that I have um, because of the experience of my clinical practice uh, where I see a lot of patients in a sexless marriage, uh, which is a bit of an oxymoron. People think everyone who's married is having great sex all the time. Um, Not happening. (laughs) I was saying one of my friends said that she was making her bed this morning and she said it had been weeks <laughs> and I decided, ah, oh, I took the sheets off and I thought we should do something with this bed <laughs> anyway. And, uh, and she did and she was glad she did. But the one unfortunate aspect of that, of that was that her teenage son walked in, in the midst of it. And she decided to confront him afterward and say, Hey, aren't you glad to know that your parents are still having sex? <laughs> of course he wasn't. <laughs> But that's all right. Uh, He'll remember that later and learn what is healthy and good for you. But you know what? Sometimes your relationship might be in trouble and you might not even be aware because in the beginning of a relationship, you likely overlooked things that uh, your partner, um, you likely overlooked their faults and vice versa. Now, years down the road, it's getting harder and harder to do that. I Another friend of mine said, uh, somebody said, oh yeah, your husband is so good looking. And she said, I didn't even know who they were talking about. You know how you you just get so used to them. Um, but sometimes your arguments can become more frequent or more escalated. One partner shuts down whenever there's a conflict. So there are some signs that your relationship is in trouble. And I'm going to review them really quickly for you. One is that con- constant or chronic criticism. So you might criticize the way your partner dresses, the way they eat, the way they speak, the way they, even the way they breathe. I've actually heard that um, from my patients. This is a strong sign 
that things are in a downward spiral. So you want to just, this is all, um, you know, this is all just to make you aware, just to give you, oh, a little bit of aha moments here. We're not going to solve anything. Are you a worst case scenario kind of person? You always assume the worst. When your partner gets home late and forgets to call, you automatically think that they don't love you anymore. That type of thing. Worst case scenario, never good, never healthy for any type of a relationship and especially for you. If you're conversations start out negative, that again is uh, very detrimental to your relationship. It could be a sign that you are in trouble. And if you make blanket statements like, I don't like it that you're always late, you never take out the garbage, you always do this, those are negative statements and those aren't good. If you have that chronic contempt as well, uh, this is a sign that your relationship is in serious trouble. And that when couples are contemptuous, they actually treat each other disrespectfully. They call them names. They speak sarcastically. Eye rolling, never good as well. So uh, when you stop doing the things you love, that can really mean, you know, you've lost interest. You've emotionally removed yourself from the relationship. And that's difficult as well. If you're always on the defensive, another sign that can erode effective communication and that can lead to the demise of your relationship. So watch that as well. If your arguments get out of control and honestly, name calling, yelling, screaming, swearing, profanity, it doesn't work. It's not responsible. Respectful. Uh, conflict is natural in a relationship, but if it starts to escalate, if it gets out of control, and of course, if there's any physical um, fighting, you know, out of there, um, don't put up walls either in the relationship as well. And, and if you can't remember why you fell in love, this could be the most critical sign that your relationship is in trouble. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. This is Global News. I'm Bailey Nicholson. The Prime Minister is pledging any support needed after a pair of powerful tornadoes caused major widespread damage in the National Capital Region. Environment Canada says an EF3 twister with winds reaching 265 kilometers per hour tore through Dunrobin before moving over the Ottawa River into Gatineau, Quebec. A second, slightly less powerful tornado touched down in the neighborhood of Arlington Woods in South Ottawa. Justin Trudeau says he's been in touch with local officials. The month-long New Brunswick election campaign is down to the finish line before votes are cast on Monday. It's seen as a tightening race between the Liberals and Conservatives. Atlantic Canada's four Liberal premiers were out showing their support for Brian Gallant, who's vying to become the first New Brunswick premier since 2003 to win a second term in office. Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil cautions Liberal supporters not to take any riding for granted. At a campaign rally in Fredericton, Tory leader Blaine Higgs was asked about Gallant calling in help from his Atlantic counterparts. He called it an act of desperation. And in the U.S., immigration advocates are sounding the alarm about the latest Trump administration proposal to deny green cards to immigrants. More from ABC's Safan Kim in New York. It is the latest Trump administration move aimed squarely at dramatically changing immigration policy 
policy, a proposal that would make it harder for foreigners living in the U.S. to qualify for permanent residency if they've received public benefits like Medicaid, public housing, or food aid. Immigrant advocates call it an effort to cut legal immigration without going through Congress and say it would not penalize the undocumented, rather those who followed the rules. The government says the changes would apply to those seeking visas or legal permanent residency. Those applying for citizenship would not be affected. From the Global News Desk, I'm Bailey Nicholson. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. As I mentioned, it is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. September is, and uh, deaths by suicide are far too uh, frequent. It's often the result of mental illness or addictive behaviors. Uh, It's extremely, extremely sad it is one of the leading causes of death in both men and women from adolescence to middle age. And the mortality rate due to death by suicide amongst men is four times the rate amongst than, than amongst women. And so a lot of people experience suicidal ideation. I actually, in one of the areas of work that I do, I speak to people who are actively suicidal, have suicidal thoughts. It's, it's important to talk to somebody about that. A lot of people feel this is a taboo subject and never want to mention it. Um, there's something that a patient who was experiencing suicidal ideation repeatedly in his life told me the best thing that he ever read was um, something from met- metanoia.org slash suicide. It's M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A dot org forward slash suicide forward slash. And I'll just read a little bit from it. Um, If you're feeling suicidal now, please stop long enough to read this. It will only take five minutes. I do not want to talk you out of your bad feelings. I am not a therapist or other mental health professional, only someone who knows what it is like to be in pain. I don't know who you are or why you're reading this page. I only know that for the moment you're reading it, that is good. I can assume that you are here because you are troubled and considering ending your life. If it were possible, I would prefer to be there with you at this moment, to sit with you and talk face-to-face and heart-to-heart. But since that is not possible, we'll have to make do with this. I've known a lot of people who have wanted to kill themselves, so I have some small idea of what you might be feeling. I know that you might not be up to reading a long book, so I'm going to keep this short. While we're together here on this page for the next five minutes, I have five simple practical things I would like to share with you. I won't argue with you about whether you should kill yourself, but I assume that if you're thinking about it, you feel pretty bad. Well, you're still reading, and that's very good. I'd like to ask you to stay with me for the rest of the page. I hope it means that you're at least a tiny bit unsure, somewhere deep inside, about whether or not you really will end your life. Often people feel that even in the deepest, darkest of despair... Being unsure about dying is okay and normal. The fact that you are still alive at this minute means you are still a little bit unsure. It means that even while you want to die, at the same time, some part of you wants to live. So let's hang on to that and keep going for a few more minutes. Start by considering this statement. Suicide is not chosen. It happens when pain exceeds resources for coping with pain. That's all it's about. 
You're not a bad person or crazy or weak or flawed because you feel suicidal. It doesn't even mean that you really want to die. It only means that you have more pain than you can cope with right now. If I start pilling, piling weights on your shoulders, you will eventually collapse if I add enough weights, no matter how much you want to remain standing. Willpower has nothing to do with it. Of course you would cheer yourself up if you could. Don't accept it if someone tells you that's not enough to be suicidal about. There are many kinds of pain that may lead to suicide. Whether or not the pain is bearable may differ from person to person. What might be bearable to someone else may not be bearable to you. The point at which the pain becomes unbearable depends on what kinds of coping resources you have. Individuals vary greatly in their capacity to withstand pain. When pain exceeds pain coping resources, suicidal feelings are the result. Suicide is neither wrong nor right. It is not a defect of character. It is morally neutral. It is simply an imbalance of pain versus coping resources. You can survive suicidal feelings if you do either of two things. Find a way to reduce your pain or find a way to increase your coping resources. Both are possible. Now I want to tell you five things to think about. You need to hear that people do get through this, even people who feel as badly as you are feeling now. Statistically, there is a very good chance that you are going to live. I hope that this information gives you some sense of hope. Give yourself some distance. Say to yourself, I will wait 24 hours before I do anything. Or a week. Remember that feelings and actions are two different things. Just because you feel like killing yourself doesn't mean that you have to actually do it right this minute. Put some distance between your suicidal feelings and suicidal action, even if it's just 24 hours. You have already done it for five minutes just by reading this page. You can do it for another five minutes by continuing to read this page. Keep going and realize that while you still feel suicidal, you are not, at this moment, acting on it. That is very encouraging. People often turn to suicide because they are seeking relief from pain. Remember that relief is a feeling, and you have to be alive to feel it. You will not feel the relief you so desperately seek if you die by suicide. Some people will react badly to your suicidal feelings, either because they are frightened or angry. They may actually increase your pain instead of helping you, despite their intentions, by saying or doing thoughtless things. You have to understand that their bad reactions are about their fears, not about you. But there are people out there who can be with you in this horrible time and will not judge you or argue with you or send you to a hospital or try to talk you out of how badly you feel. They will simply care for you. Find one of them. Now. Use your 24 hours or your week and tell someone what's going on with you. It's okay to ask for help. Send an anonymous email to the Samaritans. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Teenagers can call the Covenant House 9 line at 1-800-999-9999. Look in the front of your phone book for a crisis line. Call a psychotherapist. Carefully choose a friend or a minister or someone who is likely to listen. But don't give yourself the additional burden of trying to deal with this alone. Just talking about how you got where you are releases an awful lot of the pressure, and it might just be the additional coping resource you need to regain your balance.
Suicide feelings are in and of themselves traumatic. After they subside, you need to continue caring for yourself. Therapy is a very good idea. So are the various self-help groups available in the community and on the internet. If you stayed with this page for five minutes, it's a good thing. Since you've made it this far, you deserve a reward. I think you should reward yourself by giving yourself a gift. The gift you will give yourself is a coping resource. Remember, back up near the top of the page, I said that the idea is to make sure you have more coping resources than you have pain. So let's give you another coping resource or two or ten until they outnumber your sources of pain. Now, while this page may have given you some small relief, the best coping resource we can give you is another human being to talk with. If you find someone who wants to listen and tell them how you're feeling and how you got to this point, you will have increased your coping resources by one. Hopefully the first person you choose won't be the last. There are a lot of people out there who really want to hear from you. You are loved. It's time to start looking around for one of the people who loves you. Please call somebody. There are a number of different sources as well um, online resources about depression, there's a four-minute depression quiz, there's a stigma of suicide. Um, so if you are feeling suicidal, please reach out, and uh, there's lots of help out there for you. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Uh, we're all looking uh, toward the U.S. with the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh and some allegations of sexual misconduct, really inappropriate behavior. I mean, it's it would be one thing you might be able to say boys would be boys being drunk at a party in high school, but, you know, crosses the line when allegedly a hand is placed over a woman's mouth and a body is allegedly forced upon that woman. And so that has sparked a Twitter storm of, uh, because this happened, you know, more than 30 years ago, uh, that, or around 30 years ago, this has sparked this Twitter storm is, well, why didn't she say something way back when? Well, you know, a lot of women don't report. And there was also something on Twitter that I saw Cindy Gallup wrote, and she said, men, the women in your lives, your, your wives, your mothers, your sisters, your daughters, have not told you about the sexual harassment, the sexual assault, the sexual abuse, and the rapes that they ha- may have experienced in their lifetime. You don't know about it because many women don't talk about it. And there's a number of reasons that they don't. But oftentimes when, when one woman finally gets the courage to speak up about uh, a, an allegation of uh, sexual assault, other women come out and they gain the courage to speak out as well. And such is the case in the Brett Kavanaugh uh, Senate, uh, the um, Supreme Court hearings. Deborah Ramirez, a Yale classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's, has described a dormitory party gone awry in a drunken incident that she wants the FBI to investigate. So this is a new allegation of sexual misconduct against Kavanaugh, and the claim dates to 1983-1984, the academic school year. He was a freshman at Yale University, 
one of uh, an Ivy League school, one of the most prestigious schools in the U.S. Um, and there have been uh, some Democratic senators have received information about the allegation and an investigation has ensued. This is considered to be a serious, credible and yet another disturbing allegation against Brett Kavanaugh. There was um, there was a poll that I saw and I don't remember where I saw it, but it was fully a third of women in the U.S., um, actually support Brett Kavanaugh after, you know, hearing these allegations, you know, this is a problem. Sisterhood does not exist. Um, but allegedly, I, I believe I heard something, um, it was, it was an exposure type of incident, but you know, you might wonder why people don't report. I have to say I'm extremely fortunate. I have not had sexual assault knock on wood. I have not had um, unwanted sexual advances. I have had, I have experienced sexual harassment in the office. And um, let me just give you uh, the definition so that we're all on the same page what sexual harassment and behaviors are. They are inappropriate touching, invasion of privacy, sexual jokes, lewd or obscene comments or gestures, exposing body parts, showing graphic images, unwelcome sexual emails, text messages, or phone calls, sexual bribery, coercion, and overt requests for sex, sexual favoritism, being offered a benefit for a sexual favor, being denied a promotion or pay raise because you didn't cooperate. And of course, many women experience what more aptly would be described as sexual assault, and that would be being forced to perform oral sex on a man in a position of power, a man forcing himself on a woman, either orally, vaginally, or anally, being drugged and rendered unconscious or incapable of defending yourselves. There are so many reasons that women don't report, but one of the primary reasons is the shame. Women don't come forward because they are, uh, there's the shame that is at the core of the intent, uh, that intense emotional wounding that men and women will experience. You know, I want to say women and men uh, also will experience this when they are sexually violated. Um, it's a natural reaction to being violated or abused, this, or abused, this shame. In, in fact, abuse by its very nature is humiliating and dehumanizing. And you actually, um, this is so true with sexual violations because our victim feels invaded and, and defiled. And you are also feeling uh, helpless. You're, you're just so upset uh, be, that you have been at the mercy of somebody else. And the shame leads to blame. And so many women blame themselves for the sexual misconduct of their perpetrator. Another reason is that that women don't come forward is because they deny it. They minimalize it. They think, oh, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't that bad. Um, they tend to be overwhelmed with that shame. And, and so they refuse to believe that they, that the treatment that they endured was in fact abusive. And so they downplay what has happened to them. And I mean, even as I read that list, I have to say, well, maybe, I mean, yes, I said I had an experience with sexual harassment in the workplace and I, and I refer to a particular incident where the, the chief executive officer of the biotech startup company, um, a, 
sexually harassed me. He emotionally abused me, psychologically abused me as well. I didn't last very long there because I wasn't going to put up with it. But I have to say it, it was damaging. I, I got anxiety. I was extremely upset. I, he actually forcibly confined me in my office and the office had a glass door on it. And there were lawyers and MBAs. So these were uh, men and women in their 30s and 40s and 50s who had... Um, who watched. They saw this. They did nothing. They walked around like stand-up dolls. I certainly have received inappropriate, unwelcome sexual emails. Um, you know, so there have been other instances as well. I did um, get a lawyer, which is something that I would suggest that you do. Um, I have a call from Frank. Hello, Frank. Hi, Maureen. Um, enjoy the show. I was Thank just you. listening to you uh, uh, mention that you had experienced sexual harassment. Um, and I'm sorry to hear that, but, uh, but you then you listed a bunch of the things that constitute harassment, and uh, one of them was was sexual joking, and it just it reminded me that ten minutes ago or fifteen minutes ago earlier in your show before a commercial, uh, you were joking with one of your producers or somebody, and and it was, it was a sexual. There was well. This is the, the the sex show, the health show. So it, it had an innuendo, and it was definitely a sexual joke. Um, when are men or women supposed to know that it's over the line? I mean, is it an obvious thing? But there, and often it is. But sometimes you're not sure of the other the criteria of different people of crossing the line is is more so in the workplace because it happens in in the instruction. Everywhere, all the time. You okay. Know, what do you think? What's your input? Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's a great question, in fact. Um, you know, there, certainly the occasional joke here and there in the office is fine. It's, it's, typically, it's a campaign. It's a, it's a repeated, it's constantly coming in and constantly saying, making somebody uncomfortable. It's not, uh, you know, you may or may not know that person. You may have power over that person. Um, and so it's, you know, it's really, if somebody says to you, I don't like the jokes that you're, um, you know, if Andrew and I have joked back and forth tonight, Andrew, are you upset of anything I said? <laughs> no, I'm, I can't like, remember. I would have said something, right? And yeah, I'm, exactly. It's part of that, that two-way road where if you're uncomfortable with something, I think you need to voice it. And then the onus falls on the other person to say, okay... Like it won't happen again. That's right. And and sometimes people don't know. They don't know that they've crossed the line. And, and they may have very good intention or they might just be being silly and, and then didn't have any intention of offending somebody. And, and a one-off thing, I don't really think constitutes it unless it is sort of, it, unless it is actually an unwanted sexual advance, inappropriate touching, um, that type of thing. You're right. There are nuances to this, Frank. Um, you know, and so it's, it's something that if somebody tells you that's inappropriate, you know, um, it is. I certainly make lots of jokes about this program because of the work that I do. And there's a, there's, you know, opportunity every turn for me to, um, make, make those kind of jokes. So if I've offended any of you, uh, I do apologize. <laughs> as, as, it, the as, hardest part is, is having the courage to stand up and say that it offended you. That's always the hardest part. It, it, yes, exactly. And if somebody tells me that, you know, of course I never want to harm anybody. I never want to hurt anybody, but you know, I agree with you, Frank, you have to be careful in 
today's workplace um, because many we've seen many, many uh, people in high positions, many men in high positions fall very rapidly. Um, but, but I think this is a conversation that we need to continue to have and we need to, um, you know, we need to talk about it. People need to stand up. If they see something that's inappropriate that is going on, they actually need to stand up and say something. You know, that was one thing in my situation. Nobody stood up. Nobody said anything. I actually did. Um, he, he had actually abused this man, had actually abused 22 women before me. So it was it was a nightmare. Um, I have to say I had lots of anxiety. I had embarrassment. I had shame. I had a whole bunch of things going on. Um, but anyway, unfortunately, we are out of time. And uh, Andrew, thank you so much for a fabulous show. Thanks for supporting me uh, behind the boards. And uh, remember, uh, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I'm Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.